You're listening to CRST, the podcast from Bryn Mawr Communications. Hi, I'm Dr. Ben Laho, ophthalmologist specialising in cataract and refractive surgery from Adelaide, Australia. And today I'm joined by two great surgeons from around the world. I've got Dr. Ahmed Asif from Cairo, Egypt. And I've got Dr. Steve Safran from New Jersey. Thank you both for coming. Now, today we're starting the year off in style with CRST's first podcast for 2022. You'll notice that CRST's January issue features 10 best-in-class videos from their FACO Saves video contest, for which I served as a judge. Of course, I never have complications, so I couldn't enter. In reviewing the submissions, we judges were asked to evaluate each video based first on its difficulty, the management strategy, and the final outcome. We also looked at the production value, creativity, and artistic merit. There were, of course, many fantastic submissions, but today I'm grateful to be joined by two of the submitters of the highest ranked videos, Dr. Steve Safran and overall winner, Dr. Ahmed Asif. Thank you both so much for joining me. First of all, Steve, thank you for coming. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. Thank you. Oh, pleasure. So, Steve, for people that don't know you so well, whereabouts are you practicing and what's your specialty? What do you usually do apart from manage complications? I'm a uh, solo private practitioner, uh, last of a dying breed, I think. Um, I'm in Lawrenceville, New Jersey, which is near Princeton. And I've been there for uh, just about 30 years now. Um, and uh, my practice, I'm cornea trained, uh, but I do uh, a lot of complex case management, really from front to back of the eye uh, with uh, glaucoma surgery, cornea surgery, cataract surgery and quite a bit of uh, vitrectomy uh, surgery related to the anterior segment work that I do. So I, I get sent a lot of complex cases where there's a lot of different aspects to the pathology that needs to be coordinated. Uh, and it, it, it's, I think, better for the patient in many respects because I can handle things that normally you would have three or four surgeons uh, working together involved in and it makes it a little easier for me to kind of put things together I think, and you know, keep the patient running from four different doctors who aren't communicating with each other. So I get referred to a lot of complex cataract cases and uh, dislocated lenses, uh, failed corneas, glaucoma, that sort of stuff. Yeah, I remember seeing some of your videos at the Oscars meeting in Queenstown in New Zealand. And uh, so I, when I saw your submission come up, I knew this would be a beauty and it was. Well, thank you, thank you very much. Yeah, there's um, a little interesting background for this uh, particular case. Uh, this, uh, the case that I, I showed was actually the uh, son of a 38-year-old woman, uh, a one-eyed 38-year-old woman who came to me from 500 miles away, and she had microspherophagia. And the first eye had failed cataract surgery, and the eye did not do well. I, I didn't do that surgery. That was done by a very well-known surgeon, excellent surgeon. And uh, there were complications. And then she was referred to me from 500 miles away with a microspherophagia. She had a lot of astigmatism. I was able to manage that case. And, you know, I didn't see her for five or six years. I assumed she was doing well. And then she showed up with her son in tow and he was 14 years old. And he is actually the kid with Marfan's with the bilateral ectopia lentis that uh, I showed in this video that we're discussing today. Oh, wow. Oh, gee, I think all of those complications uh, make me worried going into any surgeries. So uh, that combination sounds awful. Ahmed, hello. How are you also? Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm fine to be here. 
Yeah, great to have you and our overall winner. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, it's a pleasure. I did vote for your video. So uh, I think it was a, an absolute goldmine of pearls. Uh, so Ahmed, whereabouts are you working and, uh, and what's your area of specialty? Uh, first of all, I would like to thank you and I would like to thank the uh, CRST editorial members for uh, establishing this video contest. I can imagine how much work the judges have to do and, and the hardship in selecting the winners of videos among the excellent videos submitted from all over the world. So I would like to start by introducing myself. I'm a professor of ophthalmology in Ain Shams University. This is the second largest university in, in Egypt. I'm a shareholder in a private practice in Egypt. It's called the Al-Watani Eye Hospital. It's uh, one of the largest uh, private hospital of ophthalmology in not only in Egypt, but in the Middle East as well. My main area of interest is phacorefractive. I'm doing a lot of cataract cases, especially premium IOLs. I'm one of the fans of the premium lenses and the, high, uh, the um, highest technology, like the femtosecond laser technology in the cataract surgery, as well as in the refractive surgery, like the femtolasic, etc. And of course, I'm doing a lot of complicated cases and uh, subluxed cataract. I'm doing some glaucoma cases, phagic IOLs, cornea cases, but I don't do any uh, posterior segment surgery. Well, there's a lot going on. So, um, Ahmed, Let's start by uh, discussing your case, because this one really made a, a real impact on the judges. It was really impressively done, but an unusual case. For anyone that hasn't watched the video yet, can you share a brief description of the case and how you managed it when things went wrong? Yes, uh, it was a routine cataract case, uh, white cataract, just a routine white cataract case. And as you know, the most challenging part of these cases is to do the rexes. So I managed uh, beautifully to do the rexes with after staining with Triban blue and I thought at that time that I have finished the case because as you know usually the white cataract is not hard as other forms of cataract like the Brunison cataract so at that time I thought that I have finished the case until I realized that I have a large piece of the nucleus almost a third part of the nucleus has been fallen inside the anterior vitreous. So uh, I, I thought I had a, a break inside the posterior capsule and I was astonished uh, to realize that the posterior capsule was intact. And it took me a few minutes thinking how could this large piece of the nucleus find its way to the anterior vitreous. So I realized at that time that I have a zonular weakness and uh, inferiorly, and the, through this area of uh, zonulopathy, the, uh, this part of the nucleus could escape from the anterior chamber to the anterior vitreous. I mean, I think that's everyone's dream to think you've got a posterior capsule tear, but it's not. It's, uh, you know, that's what everyone wants the outcome to be. It's usually the opposite. And, uh, how did you go about rescuing this piece that was behind the capsule, basically? Yes, uh, I was thinking at that time, how can I retrieve this part? Because I have either, we can call one of my friends of the posterior segment surgeon trying to retrieve uh, this part. But again, I had intact posterior capsule. So I had to make the decision to sacrifice this posterior capsule and try to puncture this posterior capsule to retrieve this part back to the anterior chamber. So um, with the MVR or keratome 1.2, I tried to puncture the posterior capsule and it was very flexible and very flaccid, 
because of the uh, zonier weakness. So I had to do another instrument to try to do some sort of counter traction and puncture this posterior capsule and try to convert this break into a posterior axis. And um, obviously I couldn't uh, convert this iatrogenic break in the posterior capsule into posterior axis because of the same reason of the zonier weakness. So I took the decision after uh, filling the anterior chamber uh, with the dispersive OVD and trying to tamponade the vitreous and preventing the vitreous from collapsing inside the anterior chamber to bring this uh, nucleus through the break that I have already made in the posterior capsule into the anterior chamber. Once I succeeded to bring this uh, nuclear piece in, inside the anterior chamber, I uh, used the scaffold technique uh, that published by Amara Grawal, and I found this technique is very useful to continue fecal emulsification in the presence of open posterior capsule to uh, emulsify the uh, nuclear fragments inside the anterior chamber. Oh, it was beautifully done. I think with all of these complications, it's, a, it's often a balance between the risk taking, trying to manage it yourself versus just closing up and handing over to someone else, isn't it? I, yes. And, and you obviously had the skills to do it, so it was beautiful. One of the things I took away from it was the scaffold technique, was the idea that, you know, I could fake this piece away while still having a structure in between me and the vitreous space. Is that something you've done before? Yes, I've done many times before, and I found it's very useful because the three-piece lens, when you implant the three-piece lens inside the anterior chamber, you can keep the trailing haptic outside the eye or just keep the anterior chamber, the, the three-piece lens completely inside the anterior chamber. And the, the optic, you can use the optic to plug or to um, block the break inside the posterior capsule so you can continue fecal emulsification. Here, the teaching point is to you have to modify the settings, the FECO settings. You have to reduce the ultrasound energy and you have to reduce the bottle height or the infusion pressure. And of course, you have to reduce the aspiration rate and the vacuum and use some sort of slow motion FECO. And of course, you have to inject ample amount of dispersive OBD to protect the corneal endothelium because we are doing FECO emulsification pretty close to the corneal endothelium inside the anterior chamber. Yeah. Well, I'll come back to you to also ask about how you remained calm in such a stressful situation. But let's change gears and uh, move over to Steve. And Steve, would you mind describing your case and, and how you managed it? Because that was also an, an unusual situation. Yeah, so this was a 14-year-old uh, boy with Marfan syndrome, and he had bilateral atopia lentis. He had very long eyes. I think they were 27.65 millimeter, uh, the left eye in length. Uh, it was the more myopic eye. Uh, otherwise, it was less than that, I think 24, 25 millimeters in length. And we decided to do his left eye first. Uh, that was the more highly myopic eye. We he had a significant astigmatism, and after a lot of discussion with his parents, we decided to do a toric lens. Uh, and the plan was to place um, extended depth of focus lens, a symphony lens on the correct axis. And, um, you know, you're hoping everything goes perfectly because, uh, you know, you have to create a perfect rectus and you have to support the capsular bag. The lens bag complex is pretty dislocated from the weakened zonules that you have here. And, uh, you know, I, I think what this case demonstrates that it's never too late to screw up a great case. <laughs> I mean, you know, you can, you can, you know, I, I, I go out to dinner and I, I wear a, a nice clothes sometimes and I get through the whole meal and say, I can't believe I didn't spill anything on my pants or my shirt. I just can't believe it. It's a miracle. And then you take that last bite and there it is. It ends up on your, 
ends up on your clothing. And th that's something I sometimes think about when I'm doing my case, the very last maneuver and you're pulling out of the eye or whatever, it's never too late to ruin a perfectly good case. I think this case is a pretty good demonstration of how that can happen. Um, in this case, I was successful, you know, doing the Rexus, uh, I was successful putting capsule retractors in, doing the fake emulsification. I was able to place a, a Malugan modified Sioni CTR with Gore-Tex suture. Everything looked great. I put the lens in the bag. I had it on the correct orientation um, and I was pretty much done. But because the patient comes from 500 miles away and I knew we'd be going back, I just wanted everything to look perfect. I didn't want anybody looking and say, well, you know, Steve's slipping a bit, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and that's really what you think because I'd done the mother and the mother was perfect. And I said, well, I want this to be as perfect as the mother. And what I decided to do was to um, make the Rexus. And I've done this many times. After I finished the case, I said, I'm just retear the Rexus a little bit to make it absolutely perfect. So there's no, not much overlap. There's no glare or diffractive issues from that. And so I made a little nip in the, uh, in the anterior capsule of the micro scissor and I started to tear. And as I'm starting to tear, I just feel that this thing wants to yeah. start to go out. And I'm like, why is it doing that? You know, it just wants to go out. So I, you know, I'm gonna come from the other way and meet up. So I come from the other side, make another nip so I can tear and meet up. And I did that. And the thing just keeps going and going. It just keeps extending and going. And I'm watching it. Yeah, watch it. Just uh -huh. like, like, it's like, if there's a 14 year old kid, he's going to be living. It's not like he's 94. And, you know, you're watching this and thinking this kid's going to be around for 70 years, perhaps 80 years. And this thing's going around and around and around. And now all of a sudden I see the lens falling into the vitreous, my symphony torque lens falling into the vitreous. And, you know, my anger at myself at this point, you know, my, I mean, I was literally cursing at myself. I was so angry and the nurse is just dead silent in the OR. Can you imagine that scene? You know, I'm like, I can't you reproduce it. sit there and watch, isn't it? You can't do anything. It starts There's to nothing cut, you can do. Watch. It's just unraveling in front of you, like falling apart in front of you, like sinking, like the Titanic in front of you. And, um, you know, you just, there's wishful thinking. You think, well, maybe it'll be okay. You've nudged the lens a little bit. Maybe if I, but it's a toric lens, you can't change the axis on it. But basically, if you watch the video, you see the whole capsule bag sort of splays open. The lens starts to sink into the vitreous. And then you have to readjust and say, okay, you know, now what's really the best thing to do for this person, this kid? What, how do I, you know, salvage this case? You know, what do I, how do I face him the next day and the mother and the father the next day and explain what happened and what I did? Um, one of the other important points I think to make here is that if you look at the video, you'll see that the lens is, after I put it in, ever so slightly decentered towards. 12 o'clock. And I think that when I was retearing the rectus, I was hoping to sort of disguise that a little bit or maybe ameliorate that a little bit, which was never going to happen. The reason there was a slightly decentered was because my vector forces were slightly off. Where I had placed the suture in the eyelet for the Malugan modified capsule tension ring was not really exactly in the right place where it needed to be. It really needed to be exactly opposite where the zonules were strongest in the area where the zonules were weakest. 
And because it was slightly off to the side, it wasn't in that exact area, my lens bear complex did not center perfectly. Instead of pulling against the area that was strongest, I was pulling slightly to the side of it. And really what I, if I wasn't happy with what I had, what I probably should have done was simply redo the suturing of the Gore-Tex uh, suture through the eyelet, put that in a different place, or live with what you've got, which probably would have been fine. You know, it would have been uh, fine. The other thing is, I wonder if, you know, 99 times out of 100, the lens, the capture wouldn't have split. You know, I think those vector forces didn't look too out of, too out of whack to me. Well, I've done many, many of these cases where I have retorn the capsule. Matter of fact, I just had a 28-year-old Marfans similar to this, where at the end I did retear the capsule because I felt it was the right thing to do. And this, nothing like this happened. And in her case, I did it. I, I had my reasons for doing it. I felt it was what she needed. Um, and, you know, she did fine. Uh, you know, so you're always saying, you know, should I do this? And you say, you know what, I, I, I actually don't think retearing the capsule was, was uh, such an egregious thing to do. I think that my indication, my reason for doing it was trying to fix something that I really couldn't fix. By doing it, the lens was slightly decentered. And I probably would have left that alone and been fine. And I knew that as this was happening, I knew, who are you kidding here? You know, you didn't need to do this. If you were gonna fix it, this wasn't the best way to fix it. And now you've got an absolute, you know, potential, real potential disaster on your hands. You know, cause you know, 28 millimeter, 27.6 millimeter eyes are not the easiest to do Yamani on. And, you know, you got a young 14 year old kid and, you know, it was not a pleasant moment in my life as oh, a surgeon. Yeah. And would you say that your lesson, and I feel, I feel rude even saying this, but do you feel like your lesson was that the enemy of good is perfection? You know, I think that that's a very famous uh, saying, you know, that perfect is the enemy of good. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think that it's really a matter of judgment. You know, I, I think that in this case, because I had already done the mother and she came out so well, and I was trying to match or exceed that, you know, as a validation of that, I was a better surgeon than I was five or six years ago, perhaps. There's a lot of motivational reasons. And, you know, it's it just, in her case, I used two capsule tension segments that were placed 100, you know, 90, apart from each other. So it was very easy to center everything because I had two segments. Here, I only had one segment, and unless it was, suturing in exactly the right place, you know, it's not going to center perfectly. And I just don't think I recognized that at the time. Looking back at the case and reviewing it, I said, well, you know, you're an idiot because what you were doing wasn't going to fix what you were looking at that was bothering you. What was bothering you was the slight decentration, thinking somehow repairing the rectus might mask that or make it better. And looking at the video, I said, that's not how you fix that. That wasn't going to achieve anything. But at the time, my being so terribly upset was just because I was done. And now I was knee deep in a 14-year-old's vitreous and trying to do your mommy and yeah, not a place you want uh, to be. Not a place at all you want to be. Now I do want to talk to both of you about staying calm when you when you're in a stressful situation. I think it might have been Abe Vizavadas that once said, look if if he has a complication, he unscrubs, leaves the room, comes back in, scrubs again and says, right, what do we got to deal with here? Because we all know if you're teaching someone, it's much easier to take over and fix a complication. 
than if it's your own. You can sometimes feel a bit, oh, damn, I've really marked this up. Now I've got to get myself out of it. Ahmed, how do you stay calm in that situation? What are your tips for not, uh, not letting the stress get to you? I didn't see any tremor when you were operating. You looked calm as a cucumber. It's quite a difficult question to answer, how to stay calm, because, you know, it's based on on maybe experience and how, how many complications you have faced in your career. Uh, so the more complication you can manage, the more calm you can be in such situations. So, and first of all, you have to have a clear mind. Once the complication has occurred, uh, first you have some sort of checklist. As you see in, in my case, for once I realized that I have or suspected I have a break inside the posterior capsule, First of all, I have to freeze and not to pull out the phaco tip in, from outside the anterior chamber before filling the anterior chamber with OVD. Of course, preferably to be a dispersive OVD or any OVD in the surgical tray can do the job to prevent collapse of the anterior chamber. So this is the first trick that I've learned throughout my career from other surgeons worldwide, that first, once you notice a complication in the posterior capsule, opening in the posterior capsule, just suspect a complication, just freeze and inject OVD and see what is going on. And before pulling the FACO piece, uh, FACO uh, tip outside the anterior chamber, and then you can see what is going on. If there is a really break or falling fragments in the anterior vitreous, if you are going to call some of your friends experience in the posterior segment surgery, or you can manage the case by yourself. So this is the first thing uh, should be learned that I used to teach the residents in my area about just you, you know that by the basic instinct just want the complication the surgeon or the resident used to pull the fecal tip from outside that you chairman this is a disastrous indeed and I think uh, like you say actually admitting that you've got a complication because it can be quite easy to just continue and think yeah that capsule's not quite behaving right but We'll be right. Let's just keep going and see what happens. <laughs> of course, the denial won't do anything except uh, asking for more complications. So you have to have a high index of suspicions in these cases. Uh, so you have to suspect if there is a complication. If there is no complication, fine. You can move forward and continue the case as usual. Yeah. And Steve, uh, you having seen uh, complicated cases, I imagine you're heart rate doesn't go above 60 anyway, so it doesn't, doesn't stress you out. But do you, the other thing I'd like to ask you about is, do you find that you video all of your cases so that you can go back and review them? No, I, I used to, I, I really don't because, um, you know, it, 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 I don't have the capacity to do every single case. I need to have certain microscope that I can videotape with. And uh, even then, I, I really don't, I only tend to video cases that are complex or interesting. Uh, just, you know, otherwise I'd have tons and tons of, <laughs> yeah. you know, discs and cassettes and USB drives and wouldn't know what to do with them. Um, you know, I did want to comment a little bit about the question you asked, Ahmed, because um, it's, you know, I, I think this is very important. You know, I used to have panic attacks when I was uh, a teenager and learning how to deal with my own anxiety, uh, I, I think has really been helpful for me to learn how to deal with these situations in the operating room. You know, I meditate uh, before I go to the OR and learning how to breathe properly and maintain, you know, that certain level of uh, focus uh, and refocus yourself 
in these situations, I think is very helpful. So um, the, the first thing is when you have a situation that's challenging is to learn how to control your you know, heart rate, your emotions, your feelings, and to stay as calm as possible, breathe properly, keep your hands heavy, not get tense. Uh, the other thing I think is uh, the recognition that you're not dealing with the same case that you started with. Once you have a complication and you have a new situation, you know, it's like having a roadblock, you know, you got to go a different route and you can't just plow through it. So when I have a complication, uh, things aren't going the way I had hoped. What I try to do is like what you said, I, I stop and say, okay, this case was referred to me like this. This is the starting point. What's the best thing to do for this patient presenting to me with what they now have? Okay. Not what I was hoping to do, but what they have now. And when you see a case where let's say the lens is sinking in the vitreous and the bag is falling apart, you know, you'd say, okay, if this was referred to me like this, what would I do? Okay, I would put in trocars, do a parts plane of me, take all this junk out, clean up and do your money. And so you have to face that and do that. I agree. I agree completely. The other thing I just for a final question I'd like to ask both of you is at the moment, training is focused a lot more on simulation, you know, uh, uh, simulations of basic surgery to get basic skills. Have either of you taught or do you practice any simulation of complications? Um, uh, we tried it uh, here in our facility and uh, I don't think it's very successful uh, in, 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 at least in, in our facility. Uh, it's not like the real case scenario, but um, maybe the resident can learn how to react uh, in the presence of such complications complication but you know the feelings is quite different from the uh, real cases very hard to simulate that pressure or that uh that adrenaline surge isn't it very hard to do that you can yes. always bring a, an anterior vitrectomy you can practice as calmly as you want to but knowing that something's going to fall into the back of the eye is quite a different feeling and Steve, exactly have you had anything to do with simulating those sort of experiences well i mean the question is is it better to do uh, something routine and simple on a human being, a real eye, or it's better to do something very complex. I think the experience of dealing with live tissue and real human beings, the emotions involved, uh, learning how to deal with those emotions is extremely important. And, and you can't simulate that. What you can do with simulations is learn very specific aspects of very specific procedures to get the feel for the instrumentation, how they handle, how to do a certain suture, maybe how to dock a needle. But you really, uh, I think it's, it's, it's not the same thing as, as going live, baby. It's just not. I agree. Complications are an inevitable part of our profession. I remember being taught by a professor that if you're not having complications, you're not operating enough. And I think that rings true, but they don't always have to end in disaster. The cases we've talked about today and all of those featured in CRST's FACO Saves video contest illustrate that with appropriate preparation, training, and of course skill, even the most challenging complications can become the greatest saves. Dr. Asif and Dr. Safran, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing these great videos for all of us to learn from. Signing off as moderator for this first episode of the new year, I'm Ben Lahood, and this has been CRST, the podcast. Thank you for tuning in. To watch Dr. Zossoff and Saffron's cases, along with all of the winners in CRST's FACO Saves video contest, check out the January issue on crstoday.com. 
And for more shows like the one you just listened to, head over to the podcast channel on itube.net.